0: In today's music business, there are 100 income streams for artists to keep track of. One of the ways people can get paid is via licensing. Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we partner with Vortex Magazine to talk about licensing, sponsorship, and other ways that artists can get paid. It's all coming up on the future of what? Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Marissa Hernandez from Marmoset, Brett Bird from CD Baby, and Scott Wagner from Wag's Works. Welcome to The Future of What, you guys.
1: Thank you. Hey. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah. Good to be here. I'm excited to have you.
0: So this is one of our Vortex-related roundtables that we do every now and then. And the topic of this one is Get Paid, Licensing, Sponsorship, and partnership. So, you three are all experts in some aspect of one of those topics, I'm assuming.
2: Quote, unquote. Yeah. Yeah. That's what
0: what they tell (laughs) us anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why you're here in the room. So, Marissa, why don't we start with you since you do licensing at Marmoset. Mm -hmm. And we've talked on this show before about licensing, and I think it's a topic that artists really are interested in. They're always fascinated by, like, is my music licensable? And how does this whole thing work? Totally. So, maybe you just can tell us a little bit about what you do to get us started
3: yeah so i'm a music licensing creative at marmoset music and basically we're a full-service music house but we also represent a roster of artists and that's predominantly what i'm doing is pitching music on their behalf but we also work outside of that roster if there's like a super specific need that we don't necessarily have on our roster
0: do you find though that you can pretty much cover everything with the bands that you have on your roster
3: yeah, that's something that we're really working on. We have an in-house and team, so we're in a lot of dialogue with them about, you know, if we notice that there's maybe a void in our roster, that is something that we need to, like, fill. We're always communicating about, like, references we might be getting or things that seem to be trending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool.
0: So, Brett, let's talk to you. Uh, yes. CD Baby. Explain yes. what
1: you do at CD Baby. I do a very similar thing. I work on our licensing side. I dabble a little bit in the publishing side, but I've moved fully to the sync side, and I just represent our one-stop catalog. It's not as boutique as, as Marmoset. It's you know anybody who signs up for our distribution service. If they have the rights to the master in publishing, they could opt into our sync licensing catalog, and I have over two and a half million one-stop songs.
0: Right. So One Stop, I mean, as you said, is if the artist owns their own publishing and master.
1: Correct, yeah. One Stop is a license where we're mastering both the master recording for the sync license as well as the publishing for the sync license in one license rather than clearing them in two separate ways.
0: And can you explain why that's easier?
1: It's much easier for the party that's licensing and the music supervisors who are coming to me for music because they know, you know, they don't have to double the paperwork. You know, especially when you start clearing for higher budget things or popular songs, you know, you're clearing publishing for five, six different places on certain works. Where with CD Baby, for the majority of what I'm licensing, it's all just one license. Right.
0: And that's something important also that maybe it's worth doing just a little aside on because if you've got an artist who has, let's say, A publishing company that represents their publishing side sometimes i mean we've had this at kill rock stars where the publishing company refuses to license a song for the amount that the licensor wants to license it for and you end up in a situation where the artist actually wants to license the song and wants to get the amount of money but the publisher's like no way we're not going there and that can be like losing out on cash.
1: Yeah, it's losing out on cash, and it's unfortunate, especially for you know artists who are looking to be licensed or indie artists who might have a publishing deal elsewhere and they come to me for the master. You know, It's, it's kind of an unfortunate situation when things like that happen, which there is, is an advantage of if you still have your publishing to being able to license it one stop.
0: Right. I am also not trying to devalue music here. I don't think people should just license their music for whatever someone else is willing to pay, but I do think that that can sometimes be slightly more irrational on the publisher side, where they just have a number in mind and they're not going to go below that, even if the artist is really for the usage for whatever reason?
3: Totally. I feel like there's actually been a lot of circumstances that I've personally encountered where it seems like everyone's on board except for one party. And just like that one party can really either make or break the deal. Either they get on board with it or they are just like, sorry. Yeah. And that's not good. (laughs)
0: Okay, so Scott, you want to tell us a little bit about what you do?
2: Yeah, so I handle sponsorship sales and activations for music festivals, primarily. I work with Edgefield, do some stuff with Les Schwab and Bend, Cuthbert, Brit Festival in Jacksonville, Hairfest, Sold Out, a myriad of things. Kind of all hustle, you know, trying to bring brands to festivals and festivals to brands. So I'm kind of a middleman connector.
0: I'm really interested in that because I want to know, you know, do brands get I mean, I'm assuming brands get excited about the bands that are playing.
2: Absolutely. You know, there's certain calibers and there's certain alignments that make sense. So for a Wild Hair Country Festival, for instance, like, a you know, we chase a brand like a Yeti Coolers or somebody Mm. that's a good fit. Right. Or, you know, choice of bourbon, it might be George Dickel instead of you know, bullet for instance, right. because there's kind of a twang factor with that brand. So alignment is key. Budgets are always, you know, the defining factor of whether or not the partnership's going to make sense. But uh, yeah. And then certainly like uh, in the case of something like Edgefield, My lead sponsor out there is Toyota, and a lot of it is because of the ilk of the bands out there that they say, you know, this is high profile enough for us to be associated. You know,
0: do you ever work with bands who are trying to create brand partnerships for themselves?
2: I don't. You know, I work with Jason on occasion, and, and there have been some conversations about how we might take the JFL roster and find a way to monetize Jason's entire universe. Right. and That's something that's kind of in play. Right
0: i mean that's not super common necessarily that bands get themselves aligned with a brand you know i mean i think when you get into like more serious pop or hip-hop sometimes we see those types yeah, of partnerships. you'll
2: see the country you know you see ford sponsoring alan jackson or something like that you know right. or gibson guitars occasionally you'll see the endorsements the symbol you know the heavy metal symbol right, guys right. little jan doing you know the anthrax drummer or something you know
0: that's something I think that artists are always really interested in figuring out like how they can get brand partnerships you know if they happen to use Zildjian symbols or whatever right I mean I've done some of that in the past and, and usually it's as easy as contacting them and saying hey do you want to endorse this artist and they say right. yes or no
2: maybe that's what's next for me
0: yeah there you go it's <laughs> it could happen free gear, anyway <laughs> I'm sure you know <laughs>
2: get some symbols totally. for my drummer right
0: yeah <laughs> Your are That was November Man by Filthy Friends. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Marissa Hernandez from Marmoset, Brett Bird from CD Baby, and Scott Wagner from Wag's Works. So I want to come back to Marissa and Brett for a second because i think this is sort of the age old question with licensing right you're in a band you make the music that you make the original music that you make you are yourselves right but then there's licensing and when people are trying to license music for anything for film or a tv show or whatever they have a sound in their head that they're trying to hear and then they want to find somebody that fits that and ideally you find you know the perfect creative band original band and the perfect song that goes with this person's vision and that's how you make a happy marriage but i think there's also a lot of people out there who are like well how can i make my music more palatable to the people who might be looking to license it and i just wondered how you guys feel about that like this is sort of the philosophy section of this interview because i i just wonder you know like i feel like that's kind of a big deal these days
3: yeah I feel like usually you can tell when that's what's happening, like they're trying to make something explicitly for the purposes of licensing and you can kind of feel that. It doesn't read quite as like artistic to me. And so I don't necessarily know if it's helpful to try and strive for it. But yeah, that's just my my opinion on it. That's interesting, because that brings up
0: the point of authenticity, right? And how, you know, I think all of us probably feel like you can hear authenticity in music. Mm-hmm. And then you can hear when it's trying to be a McDonald's jingle. Yeah,
2: it's, I was going to say, I'd love to hear an example of a song that's sort of watered down, you know. <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. You
3: know. It's usually in the lyrics, honestly. There's uh, like lyrical themes that you would hear a lot in commercials. And that's like when that's, it's like, who's really writing about that? Like, just for fun.
0: Right. Oh, that's interesting. Dropping mm-hmm. brand yeah, I,
2: references, you
1: know. I would agree <laughs> to that with an extent. You know, obviously with the advertising, the stuff people hear in the forefront that are in the face. It's you know kind of the Imagine Dragons, Portugal the Man, mm. Snow Patrol type stuff. But for me, with my catalog, you know, repping an indie catalog, I'm getting everything across the board. So for me, my answer is always just be authentic to yourself, right? quality music that your heart is behind. I mean, for instance, last week I licensed a song that was released in 1958 from an artist from the Philippines. Yeah. You know, so for, for me, it's all over the place. I had a brief that I sent out the other day that they were looking for a cover of The Chicken Dance. You know, so <laughs> those are just a few examples of, you know, I get stuff all all over the place. So writing music that's authentic to yourself, from my perspective, is the best way to do it. And I'm more focused on the film and the TV rather than the advertising because, you know, advertisements are going to the major labels and clearing songs that everybody knows or whether it's a new song or old James Brown song, you know, something that evokes the the feeling of of good times. But for me it's just be true to yourself, write music that you love and there's probably gonna be an opportunity in it somewhere. Just depends on when and if that comes and what library the supervisor is going to. You know so that that's a question that I do get a lot, and it's kind of a hard one to answer because not everybody is going to be the top 40 pop rock indie rock alternative rock song that you hear on every commercial.
0: Right, and I hope that we don't all want to be that. You know, I hope that people, there's still some room for creativity, although...
1: Yeah, and, and to put a, another point on that, you know, there's definitely artists, a couple of them that we distribute, we don't have the sync rights for, but, you know, Ingrid Michelson and Greg Lee come to mind of artists who have really made a career from sync because they were true to themselves and wrote music that they really love and put their heart into, and now because of some of the sync opportunities that they got, they're very successful artists and, you know, touring the world and, and making money from their music.
0: Yeah, I'll never forget when we got a sink for Horse Feathers for nine TV commercials for the California Dairy Board. And they were all like, you know, farmscapes in the morning with the dew and everything. It was beautiful. And they used like nine Horse Feathers tracks. And it ran twice. Like it ran a whole cycle and then they renewed it for another cycle. Sorry. It was
2: ridiculous. Can you explain what a sink is to me?
0: Would someone who does it professionally like to do that? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: <laughs> so in in short... A sync license is a license that's granted to music being used to a moving picture.
2: Got it. Okay. Got it. Understood.
1: So film, TV, advertising are like the main things Mm -hmm. that you see daily that has sync licenses behind them.
0: And you know, it's interesting because that comes up when you start thinking about cover songs too, because in this country, it's totally legal to record a cover. You can cover anything, right? Any band can cover any song, but you do have to pay mechanicals when that song is reproduced. But what's interesting is if you hire a band to cover a song in a movie, that's a sync license. So it's a cover and a sync license. So it's, mm-hmm. it's two separate things. And I recently got an email from someone asking if I could help her find somebody to cover these songs in a movie. And I was like, wait a second, what are we talking about here? She wanted permission for the publishing side and this. And I was like, no, wait a second, that's a sync license. That's not a cover. So,
2: so it's both. It's both.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when a cover song is, is licensed, they're licensing the master recording separate from the publishing as well. Right. So the original publisher is always going to get paid for when a cover song is used. And, you know, exactly. cover songs are very popular right now in the sync world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that's another great reason for people to write really outstanding original music. Right. Because other people want to cover it all the mm-hmm. time. I mean, if you go on the internet, it's like 99 million Elliott Smith covers. Mm-hmm. So we're all pretty happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least his publisher is. (laughs) Okay, so Scott, let's talk a little bit about partnerships and sponsorships, because that is something that I think has become, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's become a really big deal in recent years, just because of the changing
2: economy. Yeah, I mean, and how do you mean relative to...
0: Well, just like it's really important for the industry, I mean, if you have a festival or if you're putting something on in terms of, you can't necessarily just sell enough tickets Right. To make right. enough money to make your festival work.
2: It's kind of a two-way street, you know, because artists will often charge a larger fee to a festival because they know that you can go solicit sponsors. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of six and one half a dozen, you know, whereas something like an Edgefield, which is a series, they get to keep more of the sponsorship fee because they don't get gouged by the artists for playing a festival. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like a sold out where it's in venue and it's a you know, ton of bands around the city because he calls it a festival, which is you know, and it is, but it's a collection of shows. He ends up paying a higher fee, so we, you know, then our then our sponsorship fees go up. So, you know, relative to how the promoter can make money, yeah, it's it's becoming more increasingly important because margins are getting a lot smaller for the promoter. I may have all noticed there's less comps available. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, getting into the VIP somewhere used to be pretty easy. Now it's like, uh, no, you know, yeah. you know. So, yeah, the world has shifted a lot. You know, it's better for my business, but it's definitely made things a little more challenging. For the promoter.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we've all been seeing sort of the aftermath of the touring business because, you know, as soon as digital was significant, people started saying, well, what are artists supposed to do? How are they going to make any money since you can't make money from album sales anymore and streaming pays a fraction of a penny. And everyone was like, oh, they're just going to make money on tour. So that just suddenly drove up the right, you're prices. You're sell a lot
2: of t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. It changes the game. And, you know, those artist fees go up. And so somebody like a monkey is paying, you know, for an Anderson Park or somebody. It's basically built to make them, uh, you know, and it'll sell out. It'll make them X amount of dollars. It's profile. It's not a big breadwinner for them, you know. And then so sponsorship where I come in is kind of some gravy for them, you know you know and they don't build the festival or the series based upon sponsorship dollars and in some cases they do which puts more pressure on me right and that's kind of a, an instance where something like a project Paps did not survive because it was based primarily on a sponsorship goal that was rarely achieved and the talent budget was astronomical the sponsorship dollar doesn't come in and they don't sell enough beer right and that's why we don't have it anymore you know there you go portland <laughs> Right. The answer well, to that yeah, one, if right. you ever right. were like, why don't we have that anymore? That sausage. I was uh, a <laughs> week at the time as well. So, you know, know a little bit too much, that more than I should probably share. But yeah, tough thing to pull off. Right. You know? An ode to cheap beer is an expensive ode if you don't hit your numbers. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So this makes <laughs> me think immediately when you're talking about this, it makes me go back to, I think it was 2013. I can't remember. Maybe you guys remember when the whole Kill Rockstars team went to South by Southwest and bands were playing inside a giant Doritos machine. (laughs) Anyway, that was like, I felt, everyone feels like that was the pinnacle of like, you know, the the end of (laughs) South by Southwest. Right,
2: right.
0: (laughs) It was just over, like, you're going to go see Drake performing in a Doritos machine. But it does beg the question. It's like, you know, does every brand that wants to sponsor artists is that always a brand that artists want to ally themselves with? And I think this really goes to what you guys do too, you know? Because it's like there is a point at which a lot of artists are like, you know, no, like I don't want to be seen to be endorsing this product.
2: Yeah, there's pretty strict rules generally that the artist cannot see signage from the stage, you mm-hmm. know, in all my deals. Because if they don't happen to like it, then we've got an issue. Good example is I work with Monster Energy Drink for the Hawthorne Theater. No signage from the stage. If a band comes in, you know, happens to be not too into the product, you know, and and then we can't have it factor into the negotiation for Mike when he's booking the band, you know, oh, you have Monster there. We're going to jack our rate up, you know? So, yeah. And, and, you know, in the case of Toyota is a pretty innocuous, you know, brand doesn't bother a lot of people, but we still have to be very careful about where the signage goes. Edgefield's very protective of their brand as well. So all these things are kind of a slalom course, you know.
0: Well, and I've talked on this show multiple times before about this notion of selling out and how it was like 2011 or something when selling out just disappeared as something that bands were concerned about. And all of a sudden, everyone was like, yeah. please, let me sell out. <laughs> like, can I get a TV commercial? Rock keys, right? Yeah, totally. And
2: <laughs> On every single yeah, promo ad for ev- years.
0: Everything, yeah. everywhere. <laughs> so is selling out completely over? Are all of your artists just like, yes, we want to do whatever? Or do you have to have that discussion with everybody?
3: I feel like for the most part, they're on board with licensing because it is a really great way to make a living being a musician. But that said, there are certain industries, especially in the advertising space, where we kind of leave it up to the artist to say yes or no. Like some of those being like petroleum or alcohol or tobacco, you know, just because they may or may not be aligned with those messages so we want to leave it up to them but other than that they're like please pitch my music yeah yeah
1: yeah And I think it's the same thing on on my end all of our rights are pre-cleared so it's something I don't have to go back to the artist but I will use caution if it's something that I feel is you know either the song just based on knowing the artist if they may or may not like it or just kind of a touchy subject you know I'll definitely use caution and be slow with who I'm actually pitching out to the supervisor or whoever the agency that's picking the music. But
0: you can do it at your discretion. Your contracts with the artists allow you to you know Yeah, ours much... is all
1: pre-cleared, and I haven't had a single issue yet. When I land placements, I always reach out to our artists and let them know just so they're not kind of caught off guard. And every single time, they're very grateful and very excited for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, and I feel the same way. I mean, we had famously years ago, the, the band The Thermals refused mm-hmm. to do an ad for Hummer this was like 2002 or 2004 or something, and it was going to pay them 50 grand. And they said no to that. And I remember that being a big splash. And everyone was like, oh my God, like how you know ethical of them. Like that's so <laughs> upstanding. And I feel like, you know, I just watched that, whole thing go so far away most people are just like wait how you they want to pay me how much <laughs> wasn't it
2: the the zeppelin song and it was yes. like oh that that for me that was the one that was, the it one was where... just like okay the shark has been jumped <laughs> the, <yes. laughs> it's like you know totally
0: the estate just gave in they were like fine it feels like that and it's Beatles too right because i think the Beatles was famously not licensable for a long time right That was Mope Around by Wimps. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at MerchTable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Marissa Hernandez from Marmoset, Brett Bird from CD Baby, and Scott Wagner from Wags Works. So how does that work when you bring out a new artist? Do you guys have a conversation about that, or how does that work?
3: Yeah, if there's any red flags that we should be aware of while pitching their music, that tends to be something we ask before we start doing it. But it is pretty much up to our discretion to discern whether or not it's like a controversial industry. So if it's like, okay, this is an alcohol brand, we should probably check with the artist to make sure that they're okay Mm -hmm. with this license. But other than that, we sometimes do get a note from the artist where they specifically don't want any licenses with a certain industry.
0: I'm interested in this just from my own perspective for the two of you who do licensing because especially you, Brett, because mm-hmm. you are working with two million artists or two million songs. Songs. So two million I, songs. I have
1: two and a half million one-stop songs, wow. and then I have a lot more on the master <laughs> side, cover songs, public domain stuff that I can also clear. Yeah. So I have a lot more songs than that.
0: Yeah. And I don't know how many you have, but Marmoset is a—I is, mean, you've got a lot of songs. Yeah, we've got 30,000 songs. Yeah. Yeah. So now you guys have to explain this to me, because to me, that sounds like more songs than one person can possibly hold in their head at, you know, like for real, yeah. in a real way. And if you're like, you know, you get a brief that comes in from an advertiser or something and says, I want a song that's, you know, upbeat and talks about turtles or whatever, <laughs> Right. Well, you can get rid of all the songs that don't talk about turtles, Mm -hmm. but then you've still got, you know, a huge giant pile of songs to think through. How do you do that? How do you guys do that? Do you have other people helping or what's the
1: process like? For me it's just me. Oh my God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It, do you live there? Do you get to leave? <laughs> I, I do
1: get to leave fortunately. But it it's daunting at times. I do have a set of kind of go to artists that I know. Every month at the start of the month I kinda of go through our new releases. We do have a creator services team that does all of our pitching to the iTunes and Spotify for playlisting and stuff. And, you know, I'll lean on them as well to get new songs or, you know, some of the artists that might have a little bit more of a profile than than the average artist that's distributing. But we do have an advantage because we do distribute the music, we have a lot of metadata. Mm. Uh, so we're able to, you know, see streaming numbers, see sales numbers. And, you know, a lot of times that's a place for me to start at. Because if somebody's streaming in, I know it's gonna be a song that at least has something to it. We also have genre searches, we have sounds like searches. We have a lot of tools in place that help me navigate that many songs so then i could go find you know if someone wants a you know reference song of james brown or whoever it may be i could see which artists based on the metadata that they input during the distribution point who has said in our system that they sound like james brown and then i could start narrowing it from there
0: And then you get some people where you listen to it and you're like, this doesn't sound like James Brown.
1: Right. I mean, everyone puts that they sound like the Beatles, but not really? everyone sounds like the Beatles. Oh,
0: my God. Because we have on our refrigerator at Kill Rockstars, we have this email printed out that was sent from this guy who said he was the Michael Jackson of James Browns. Mm. <laughs> yeah he, he was like a 21 year old white dude it was oh, no. hilarious i mean that's why it's on the refrigerator because we're like <laughs> you are so not the michael jackson of james browns like if there's anything you are not right. it is mm-hmm.
1: that
2: <laughs> not a lot of people comparing themselves to mj these days well yeah this was many years <laughs>
0: ago i mean some years ago indeed, but yeah. i still thought that was really funny <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is funny
3: yeah, so for Marmoset specifically, we have a lot of tools in place to kind of help us navigate the roster. We have, like I said, an in-house AR team. So we meet with them. Anybody that's doing pitching meets with them once a week so we can learn like what was added to the roster this week, just so it's at top of mind and so we are aware of what's being added. We also have a lot of metadata. So we know like if something sounds like an artist, specifically. So if we get referenced an artist, we also can check and see, okay, this artist sounds like James Brown. And Marmoset's unique. Also, we have a search function that anybody can use, and we also use that internally. So we try to take factors that people that are looking for music to license might be considering. So moods or arc or tempo. That you can filter out songs so that it's much more refined and you're not looking through like several thousand pieces of music.
0: Is that the most common? Do people most commonly ask for like sounds like another artist?
3: I would definitely say it's pretty common. For me personally, I think it's more common to see like a mood that they're going for Mm. or an emotion because Mm -hmm. they're trying to tell a story that's, you know, inspiring. And so they want music that's going to complement that emotion. So they'll throw out like anthemic, inspirational. And so that's that's stuff we keep in mind while we're searching. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think there's that aspect and reference artists as well. A lot of times they'll, you know, for me coming to the indie library, they put in what they have as a placeholder for the spot, but it's a song they can't afford. Oh, yeah. So they'll be like, here's what we're trying to replace. And then they'll give other descriptors of what it is, whether something sounds close to that or not, or something that's completely out of left field for that placement that gets landed. It just gives a reference point to start for the supervisor sending me what they need. Yeah.
0: Do you guys do what I do at movies? Like when you're sitting in the movie theater and a song comes on, you're like, ooh, they had a big
1: budget. Mm-hmm. I do yeah. that. I do that. Yeah. Yeah. I do that all the
0: time. We just did that this weekend. We went to see Captain Marvel, and they had a couple of songs in there that must have cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: Marvel's spending a lot of money on yeah. their music. It's- Totally. Placements. Yeah. So that's fun.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and, like TV.
0: Geek and TV. And you know, TV and everything. And advertise. Yeah. yeah. Just
3: yeah. any, any Anything visual media. See, yeah.
0: Really. Yeah. That's pretty funny. So anyway, the title of this endeavor that we're doing here is Get Paid. So I guess on some level, we have to think about what can we tell artists? Like, what tips can we give them? And I don't think a good tip is like, try to sound like James Brown. I definitely don't think that's, that's a, a bad good one. <laughs> and isn't that funny? Because even though a lot of the briefs that come through do say they want to sound like a certain thing, it's always a bad idea. Like you guys said, to be inauthentic and to just try to sound like something else. Like you mm-hmm. really actually have in this in this industry to make it, you need to sound like yourself. Yeah, that's like. I mean, can you add anything to that? I mean, I think that's pretty <laughs> much the the
1: message from my perspective. Sound like yourself is the biggest thing, you know write music that has good production behind it as well. On the recording side, you know, don't send in a demo tape that is not mixed or mastered or don't be trying to get that stuff out there because that's just not going to work. There's very few and far between as far as somebody looking for something that just doesn't sound like it's a complete product. So finish the product, make sure it's polished, not only on the, the writing side, but on the recording and mixing and mastering side as well.
0: That's a good point, because I just recently heard that people are doing like mastering for specific ways to listen, like streaming, like they're doing specific mastering jobs that sound. And I mean, this is really crazy, right? Because this goes back to the days, the early days of Napster, when people were like, wait a minute, you could listen to a beautiful LP, but instead you're going to listen to a crappy (laughs) MP3. That's like, everything's compressed to like this tiny little. Yeah. And yet that is like now how people listen to music. And so I feel like the engineers have just given in. They're like, fine, we're going to master it. So it sounds good in the, you know, tiny bandwidth or whatever it is Mm -hmm. that we're trying to listen to. Um, Did you want to add something to that?
3: Yeah. Specifically in the ad space, there's a lot of times where there's something that's like really close to what they're looking for, but they want to be able to tweak it. And so... I guess having stems or the session files is always super helpful. Mm. Oh. Having an instrumental just because there's not usually a lot of opportunities to sync a vocal version for ads. So those are all really helpful things. Just like as much as you can provide us as possible usually. Like if we don't have the lyrics for your songs transcribed and we don't have them on the back end of our site so we can search lyrical themes specifically, then we probably won't be able to pitch that if it does fit for something because we can't find it based off of that.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of asks too for something like specifically Mm lyric-wise. Like, it... We need these words for the chorus, and stems and instrumentals are important. Unfortunately for me, it's because it's all through the distribution process. We don't inherently have those. So for me, I'll reach out to the artist if it gets to that point. But that's definitely more on the on the ad side. Like you are saying, film and TV aren't as concerned with that because it's more background music, and the, the lyrics and the background music add to the atmosphere of whatever they're trying to accomplish with the scene or...
0: Do you guys have any stories about bands that you sort of did a license with and then it's went well and then you did another license like that have sort of, rather than being like popular already, the licensing work that you've done helped them become more popular?
3: Yeah, I used to work for a music house called Walker. And one of the projects that I was most excited about was actually for Coke. And we were doing a summer campaign for them. And they really wanted to break an artist or like To have something that people hadn't heard before. And we got this artist called Sunny and Gabe on there. And it was an unreleased song. It wasn't even mastered or anything. And so, like, so many people were commenting on the YouTube video of the ad, like, what is this song? Where can I find this song? That they had to release it. So that was pretty cool. Like, and it's got a lot of streams on Spotify now. Hmm. So cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't have as as specific of example. I think the song that I've synced the most time, I think I have four placements for it, and it's a drum line. Oh, wow. You know, and then I have another one that I've placed a few times. It's a, it's a motivational speaker, and they've been licensing the lyrics. You know, so I license lyrics from an artist for a G bad. And so, I mean, for me, it's more unique, I think, and I license all over the board. But, you know, like like I said, some of the artists we distribute, like Ingrid Michaelson or Gregory Allen Iskov, they definitely have made... A lot of money on on the sync side and that's really kind of what what broke them and you know there are a lot of shows you know Grey's Anatomy is one that's famous for trying to find singer-songwriters that are new and upcoming you know I know they don't pay a lot but the Viacom stuff tries to do the same thing so there's definitely a lot of opportunity to get your music out there and, and having a sync license propel your career to the next step
0: another aspect of this question is for film and tv sync licensing because I think that that content can be a lot more sensitive for people I'll just give one example from our lives. My husband had this band on Kill Rock Stars called Witchy Poo. And the first song he ever wrote was called Bad Circulation. And like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, we got a sync for Bad Circulation on a show like One Tree Hill or some one of those types of shows. And it was still in the days, like, this was not, you know, we didn't have Netflix or anything. So you had to actually watch the show the night that it happened. (laughs) So we sit down in front of the TV and we're like, yay, it's going to be bad circulation. And we sit down and it was a total, like, date rape scene. Uh. (laughs) Oh, Lord. With my husband's son playing in the background. (laughs) And we were both just like oh no, like we felt horrible. And also they held up an album cover that was like totally some other band. It wasn't even his band. The whole thing was really depressing. So yes, I think that 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 is the kind of thing that people do want to see before they commit when to like film or TV. I mean,
2: in my experience. Did they want to rip up the check? Witchy poo. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was too late at that point. We'd already (laughs) said yes, but
0: that was not, (laughs) that wasn't a fun experience.
2: Not ideal.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for me, again, that just goes back to the subjectivity of it. If I feel like it's a kind of a taboo subject, if I have the description of a scene, then I'll go to the artist if it gets to that point with the supervisor. You know, the, the trick is, you know, they're not only coming to a CD Baby or a Marmoset, they're going to a bunch of other libraries as well. Right. So even though I'm pitching music every day for a bunch of different spots, I might get something that i have to clear day of i might clear something a year and a half later which just happened at the end of last year something i assumed was a dead opportunity they came back and like hey we actually want to use this song can you still clear it you know so it's just kind of all over the place as far as timing goes as well so it's it's one of those hard things where you might reach out to the artist if you don't hear back right away you might lose the opportunity as Mm. well so for me i'm just kind of using discretion as as to what i feel is a good opportunity or something that i want to actually pitch for
0: That's a really good piece of advice, too, is to, you know, to artists, if you're interested in licensing, then get back to people if they if they email you or call you and say, we've got an opportunity, like, jump on it, because it will be gone.
3: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Usually, it's a very much a hurry up and wait situation. So when we're reaching out, it's because it's like, we need this now, or we need this information now. Totally. Um, Yeah.
0: Also, licensing is a heartbreaking business, you know, because we get that all the time. Our Terrorbird does our licensing, so we'll get an email from Terrorbird, and they'll be like, what about this and this? And we're like, yay, yes. And then, you know, three days later we get an email like, it didn't make it into the final edit. And we're like, oh, so heartbreaking. So you can't get too attached. I either. mean, I've,
1: I've also had a song that was cut two hours before commercial was supposed to air like it was it was confirmed went through the whole licensing process and then the editor just decided they didn't want to use that song and they went a different route and they ended up going with a library track but yeah so it's i mean the timing and stuff's all all over the place
0: that's brutal that must have been very heartbreaking
1: it was yeah and it it was early on when i was getting our library started as well so it was like a good a good starting point and then it didn't happen but That sucks.
0: I remember that Horse Feathers also had to sign an NDA at one point because they were talking to some big brand. I don't even remember what it was. And then at the last minute, they were like, oh, we're going to go to a different direction. Yeah, that was hard. Yeah, so it
1: happens. Yeah. Yeah.
3: We would always say like, nothing's final until it's Mm -hmm. aired. (laughs)
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Well, or until the (laughs) check's cleared. Yeah. That's another thing too, because sometimes it takes a while for the money to get That's another
1: thing to point out is payment can range all over the place. If it's tv it's probably going to be anywhere between 60 and 120 days after the episode airs Mm -hmm. you know film typically pays quicker in my experience and same with advertising but tv definitely can take a while to pay yeah
0: it's fun though it's great (laughs) when it happens it's great Guest Girl Vocalist by Kinski. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. Also check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Marissa Hernandez from Marmoset, Brett Bird from CD Baby, and Scott Wagner from Wags Works. Do you guys have people in your libraries who actually write for advertising or write for things specifically so they compose for the the piece?
3: Yeah, we do have some artists that do that. It's kind of a different animal composing for picture. So not everybody has that skill set that they can apply. I guess I don't really know how, the best way to explain it, but there are a lot of really talented composers who strictly write for film or TV or Ads, but don't necessarily have, like, a band or, are like, writing their own music. Not for sync, basically. Well, that, I was
0: going to ask that because mm-hmm. it strikes me. You said they're two different animals, and it seems mm-hmm. like if you're good at one, it would be mm-hmm. hard to do both. Yeah, you sort of have to pick one. Would you agree?
3: Yeah, I'd
1: say you have to pick one. It is a completely different animal from from the CD Baby side. That's not mm-hmm. something I really deal with. I have some artists that I could reach out to and be like, "Hey, they really want a custom piece for this," but I don't usually get reached out to for a custom piece or a custom score. But on the flip side of that, just because of how big our catalog is, I do have people who specifically compose in that style, not necessarily for a specific scene or film or or whatever, but we do have a lot of just straight composers of, you know, film score style music, whether that fits a specific scene or not, that's a different question. Right.
0: Scott, you want to tell me a little bit about what you've seen change in the last few years in terms of the types of brands that are interested in getting into the music space? Like, has there been a change or has it been pretty static?
2: It shifts, you know, I think that you'll see initiative shift. You'll see a a Wells Fargo, for instance, sponsoring everything under the sun, and then music isn't our thing anymore. Mm. So it really comes down to how you're quantifying that, that spend, you know. Can I go to Toyota and say, how many cars did you sell last year because of these things? Right. No. Right. You know, so it's alignment, it's lifestyle alignment. It, it really boils down to genre. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know you're always going to have booze mm-hmm. and spirits, beer, cannabis. Now is oh, kind of yeah. entering the space a little bit. Mm-hmm. That alignment's natural, obviously. And so, yeah, that's a, probably one of the bigger shifts is is the herb, yeah, coming into the picture. And
0: that's a big. That's like a high dollar industry. I feel like they probably it is, got some money. Except to
2: spend. for this, it's just such a mess, too. You know? <laughs> did you see the article that we've grown seven years worth of weed? that we can't smoke no yeah there's a surplus in the state of oregon so oh wow so the black market is 11 well anyway it's a whole separate conversation (laughs) But, but yeah i mean these are companies that want to become the starbucks of cannabis and so certainly if they can get like a PAX is a good example of somebody that wants to get product placement in a green room, mm. and then they want to see, you know, they want to get a shot of the guys in De La Soul using their device mm-hmm. for their social channels. Sure. You know, so it's a long shot. Nobody's going to willingly sign up for a PAX ad for per se, but it could be leaked. Mm. You know, so yeah, I would say that's probably one of the bigger shifts is, is categorically is cannabis. Mm. Yeah. And then, you know, auto has really emerged as a, you know, lifestyle brand. You know, when you go, again, with an field, you're thinking about somebody like a Cheryl Crow. It's, it, you know, it's soccer moms, you know. I mean, it's Subaru, Toyota, these kinds of you. Because a Prius is a perfect example, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's just a fit there, you know. So right. it's been a topsy-turvy for sure.
0: Interesting world of sponsorship. Yeah. For
2: sure. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well. Thanks so much to Brett Bird of CD Baby, Scott Wagner of Wagsworks, and Marissa Hernandez from Marmoset. Thanks, you guys, for being with me today on The Future of What. Thank
1: Thank you you so much.
0: And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Filthy Friends, Wimps, Kinski, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Stars. See you next week.